Well, the pursuit of immortality is something that has been around for a very long time. You go back into antiquity and you see the story of Gilgamesh as he's trying to figure out how to live forever. Fast forward, you see countless expeditions looking for the fountain of youth. Come into our time today and there are people spending vast amounts of money trying to figure out how to beat death. One of them is an American real estate investor named James Stroll. James Stroll started the Coalition for Radical Life Extension, the C-R-L-E. They couldn't come up with a cool acronym, I guess. This is what Stroll says. He says, we're not really worried about a measly few years added on to our lives. We don't want to extend life by days or by weeks, but we want to extend it by decades and centuries to a degree where mortality becomes an option. He says, the deathist paradigm, that's what everybody has believed since the start of time, that someone's going to die at the end, is time for the deathist paradigm to go. It's time to look beyond the past of dying to a future of unlimited living. Interesting. The world's leading futurist, which is a job to sit and think about the future. I, I don't know how you get paid for that gig, but Ray Kurzweil he says, we are only a handful of scientific breakthroughs away from eternal life. Now, there's a lot more science fiction in the discussion of eternal life now than there was in Gilgamesh's time or in the pursuit for the fountain of youth. But they are asking the right question, aren't they? How does one obtain eternal life? This is going to be the first question we're going to see in our text today, and then we're going to see two subsequent questions that come out of it that we need answers for. And I'll tell you right up front, spoiler alert, the answers are very encouraging. The answers are the good news. So where have we been? Well, chapter 19 started out with a nice, simple, and easy conversation on divorce and marriage followed closely by a discussion on singlehood and children, and then last week a discussion on where evil came from. So all of these have led us to where we're at now. Jesus is with his disciples. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's marching towards his death, and this man comes up to him. So we're going to look at the first question, which is going to take a big chunk of our time. So don't get too worried when the first question, we're still on it, you know, a few minutes from now. The second and third questions are shorter, but I would argue they're of even greater importance. So let's dig into it. So our first question is, how do I get eternal life? How does one get this eternal life? Verse 16 And behold, that's that transition word that Matthew uses, like surprise, surprise, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now he, just like the futurists and just like Gilgamesh, they're asking this right question. Now he didn't ask it perfectly. The way he worded it, there's some kind of weirdness in it, and I'll show you that in a second. But he's got the right idea. He's a rich man, and he's going, you know what? I need to think on eternal things. So right off the bat, we probably could learn from this man and be like, do we think of eternal things, or do we only think of the here and now? 
Mark 10, 17, a, a, a companion passage to this, tells the same story, says that he was eager. He's really interested in the answer. He really wants to know it. Now, honestly, at this point, we don't know that he's rich. We don't know that he's a ruler. We don't know that he's young. But in the other versions, we do see that, and we will see it come out here in a minute. So this has got to seem like a big win for the, for the disciples, right? I mean, they're sitting back and they're like, you know, we got this kind of motley crew hanging out. We're not necessarily the best of the best. And all of a sudden, up walks a wealthy man who's like, I want to follow Jesus. And you're going, yes, we've finally arrived, right? We're starting to get the big movers. We do this with Christianity all the time, right? We're following the news and someone says something that might sort of kind of maybe kind of, if you squint, be Christian. And we go, got one. Yes, we're taking Hollywood, we're taking New York, we're doing it. And see, that's what we do. And sadly, you know, just because someone says something remotely Christian or potentially goes to church isn't a proof that we are now the ones that influence society. As a matter of fact, many of those who we've held up and said, look, we got an actor, we got an athlete, only to be led to the sad conclusion that they never knew Christ because they walked away. But let's dig deeper into this guy because this guy is an important person. It's brought up in Matthew for a reason. So let's dig into his question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? The important word here is the word have. Not to enter into eternal life, not to uh, experience eternal life, but what do I have to do to give, have you give it to me? See, this man is all about having things, isn't he? This is an acquisition for him. I have all that I need save one thing. I looked on Amazon and they don't do it in two-day air. So do you have eternal life for me, Jesus? I'm a successful businessman. I'm a good father. I'm respected in the community. Now I need one more thing. I just need success with God. What do I have to do? What, what, what courses, what, what things do I have to do? So this is what the man is asking. Verse 17, and Jesus said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Notice Jesus cuts right through it. It's not something you can have. It's something you enter into. And once you've entered into it, it changes everything. When Jesus goes into the commandments here in a second in verse 18, he's going to say, I've done it. I'm a good person. Jesus already knows how he's going to answer. And right here, he is diagnosing the man's problem from the start. The man's problem is he thinks that there's something good he can do to earn God's favor. When in actuality, there's no one good except God. The great physician of our souls is working. He's administering the antidote right at the beginning, before the conversation gets going. He says, the problem you have is that you think you're good. No, there is one who is good, and it is God. And only through God are any of us saved. He doesn't tell them, you broke the first commandment, you broke the tenth commandment. Instead, Jesus shows him. Jesus asks some simple questions. And only understanding God as the infinite good is this man's only hope. Because what does the Bible say? Psalm 16, 2, it says, all good things come from God. You are my master. Every good thing I have comes from you. 
Jesus' commandments are good. They're meant to be kept. But we cannot keep them without our faith in God. Because we know ultimately we're not good, right? We, we understand that. Maybe we don't necessarily know how to articulate it, but we're totally depraved. Not utterly depraved, but we're totally depraved. We can do nothing to save ourselves except for bring a big pile of sin that Jesus can forgive. That's all we bring to the equation is all our garbage. We don't bring our garbage plus a few good things over here. No, we bring a pile of garbage. We are rotten to the core, but praise be to God, he loves us still in spite of it. Verse 18, the rich man says to Jesus, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Some of you seventh graders, you should be doing the hand signals, right? Okay. You know them. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus is only dealing with the horizontal commands. These are called the second table of the law, summarized by you shall love your neighbor. He lists commandments 6, 7, 8, 9, and 5. Does them out of order. Now, this is not because Jesus did not memorize them in order. He wrote them. No, what he is doing here is he's pointing something out. Why did Jesus skip the first commandment? Why did he skip the first four? Those are all the Godward commandments. One man wrote a long time ago that if you break the first commandment, you're going to break all the other nine. And I think that's the ultimate problem. And the 10th commandment is the most obvious one that he's breaking, and we'll see that here in a minute. But before we get into it, we need to understand this is not Jesus laying a law gospel trap on him. He's not saying, here's the law, you can't keep it, okay, come over here and get the gospel. I mean, in, in, in essence, he is doing something similar to that, but this is not how we should view the law, as this unobtainable thing that's this old thing, that's why it's called the Old Testament, it really should be the First Testament, but this Old Testament, these laws, we don't have to keep them anymore, we've got gospel. That's a thing called antinomianism, and that actually is a heresy. God's commandments stand. The thing is, we can't hit them, so the gospel is he provides us with the ability to hit those commands. Are we going to hit them perfectly? No. But he still demands that we obey, and we should obey and obey these commandments. The key is that being perfect does not change that the commandments are not ours to follow. See, the thing is, obedience is a gift from the Lord. It's the Lord working on your heart so that you can do it. The Spirit working inside of you provides you with obedience. The last thing we should do when we obey God's commands is be like, wow, I'm really good. No, it should be, God, you are so good. Because I know left to myself, I am totally depraved. Your Spirit is the only way anything good comes out of me. Our faith is never alone. It is always with works. Works comes out of us because of we are alive. When we enter into eternal life, we begin living, and the living is out for everyone to see. That is it. So what is this whole love your neighbor as yourself thing? I have my neighbors sitting here in the room, so I better say some nice stuff about them. But who is your neighbor? Spurgeon says, who is your neighbor? Well, that's anyone who's near us. Guess what? That's all of you. What are you to do to your neighbor? You're to love them. Not enough not to hate them or keep your distance, but loving is not in not doing, it is in doing. So how are you to love your neighbor? You're to love your neighbor as yourself. How much does one love himself? None of us love ourselves too little, but probably we love ourselves too much. 
Spurgeon's words, not mine. You may love yourself as much as you please, but take care that you love your neighbor as much. We need no exhortation to love ourselves. Your own case will be well seen to. Your own comfort will be taken care of, but you need to remember you are to love your neighbor the same. Romans 13, 8 and 9. Owe nothing to anyone except to love each other, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in the word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think that's, that's Paul restating what we see here with Jesus. Chuck told me a funny story the other day about, I know, it's a surprise, Chuck tells lots of funny stories. But Chuck told a funny story the other day about a man who comes in for marriage counseling. And he says to the counselor, I don't love my wife anymore. And the counselor says, well, the Bible says you are to love your wife. Yeah, but I don't love her anymore. Well, is she a Christian? Yeah, she's a Christian. Well, the Bible says you're to love your Christian brother and sister. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. The counselor goes, where does she live? And he goes, well, in our house, duh. And he goes, well, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes, Sir, do you like your wife? He goes, no, I can't stand her. He goes, Bible says love your enemies. So guess what? No matter how you cut it, you have to love your wife. Over and over again, you have to love your wife. Chuck said it way better than me. I'll just admit that right from the start. So the young man responds in verse 20. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what do I lack? The word kept there is, means wholeheartedly obeyed. So he's saying, I am totally about following these. I have made it my point. He's missing the point, though, unfortunately. Jesus' teaching about the commandments has always been, it's not just what you do, but the reason behind it. In the next verse, in verse 21, it says, Jesus said to him, but Mark gives us a little clue as to how Jesus is viewing this man. And I think it's important that we get this. Mark 10, 21 starts with, and Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him. So many times when we read, we kind of read in this vacuum and, and we see this negative view, right? The, the rich young ruler is going to go away upset. Jesus isn't punishing him. Jesus isn't taking it out on him. Jesus isn't sticking it to the man or the oppressive rich people. What he's doing is he's loving him. He's speaking truth, and he's saying, you need to see the truth that your heart is not mine. Your heart belongs to the dollar sign. He wants to take him deeper into a love with the Lord. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to him as he was loving him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. He's saying, sell what you possess. If you're truly good, if you've, commit my, if you've kept my commandments, you'll know the first one is there's only one God and to have no other gods before me. And the second one is like it in that, guess what? No idols to take his place. So guess what you've done? You've put an idol in his place. You're saying, I bow down to wealth. And that's who I worship. Jesus is exposing his love for a replacement God. Now, does this mean that he wants us to do all the same thing? We should all join the, the, uh, the Franciscan monks and get rid of all wealth? No, unless the Lord calls you to, then you can do it. But this, old, this young man needs to renounce his wealth because it's his God. He needs to renounce his wealth because he's going, this is the thing I can't live without. 
This is the thing he must renounce to enter life. Because this is an idol we must demolish. If we want to be perfect as our Father is perfect, we must understand that idolatry is our number one sin. And here in America, the biggest idol we make is wealth, followed very closely, if not a tie, with ourselves. Wealth and self-worship are incredibly seductive. Seductive. Wealth is especially seductive because if you have wealth, you almost feel like you're all-powerful. Do you remember in the, the 1980s, the, uh, the uh, guys who were working on Wall Street, what was the nickname for them? They were the masters of the universe, right? That was a nickname in the New York Times. These guys were so powerful and so rich, they could crash economies and they could, and so on, right? Money is very seductive because you can do what you want if you have lots of it. Idols love to suck us in because they love to be worshipped. Wealth is a big culprit, and it's really easy for us outside of a lot of wealth to see it. But you can also be poor and be obsessed with wealth. You can be poor and be proud. You can be rich or poor, but maybe you're neither. Maybe you struggle with the use of your tongue. Maybe it's lust or hatred or bitterness. Most definitely for each of us, it is selfishness. We struggle with the idol of self. But here's the key. If we don't root our sin out, if we don't get it out and relinquish it, we lose everything in our fellowship with God. See, Christ separates us from the world or the world separates us from Christ. It's either or. It's one or the other. There's no in-between. The separation from the world is worth it because we get Christ. Either we love Christ so much that the world has no handhold on our hearts, or we love the world so much that there's no room in our hearts for Christ. This is the only option you have. Either you're Christ's or you're the world's. Jesus wants this man. He doesn't want his wealth. Jesus doesn't need his wealth. Only by coming to Jesus will he find the rest that he needs. So we see in verse 21, two commands. Give what you have to the poor, sell it, and give it to the poor. There's your two commands, right? Sell, give. And then we see two promises, and these promises are huge. You will have treasures in heaven, and you can follow me. Treasures and Jesus. Jesus knows that this man's identity is something that could be lost. Think about all the things that we find our identities in. Find your identity in wealth. Guess what? The market changes. Your wealth is gone. You find your identity in a job, and guess what? They restructure. Gone. You find your identity in being a parent. You might lose a child. A spouse. You might lose that spouse. Everything that is lesser than God is an idol that is a hair's breadth away from being gone. Jesus is saying, don't find your identity in anything but me, because I'm not going anywhere. I am the, the source of eternal life. You are mine forever. I'm not going anywhere. When the stock market crashed during the Great Depression, it was said that 29 or 30 men jumped from windows because they had lost so much that they'd rather die than deal with the fact that they lost all their money. That's called finding your identity in something other than God. This verse, verse 21 in the New King James, adds a little bit of extra, which I think fits. It's not there in the original, but it, it's interesting, so I wanted to share it with you. 
Jesus says, go away, sell whatever you have, give to the poor. You'll have treasures in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. Taking up the cross, you're not putting on your best clothes and you want to look really good for it. No, you're stripped of everything and your identity is found in the one who was hung on the cross in your place. Well, for this young man, it's not good enough. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. See, the world's lie is if you have wealth, you are invincible. You can do whatever you want. If you don't have wealth, you're a hair's breadth away from being destitute, living outside. Proverbs says this, though. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Translation, the Lord is a strong tower for the righteous. This is true. Wealth is a fortified city for the rich in their imagination. This should ultimately, this should break our hearts. Part of us, we kind of go, we're kind of thinking like Robin Hood, right? And we're like, well, of course the wealth you get it. Yeah. But this should break our hearts. This is an image bearer of God who has said, I have a bunch of stuff and that's more valuable than eternity with Christ. He's going, my possessions on this earth are worth more than eternity in eternal torment in hell. He chooses fleeting luxury now for torment. Having been a school teacher for 16 years, I have close to about either between 800 and 1,000 students come through my room. Many of them have taken this bargain. They've taken it. And they've said, I'd rather have what the world has to offer than anything that God has to offer. I've shared the story with you before, but I had a student who was a missionary. She was working in the mission field. And then all of a sudden, she disappeared from all her social media and all the connections. And then she popped up. And she was marrying a man old enough to be her father. 25 years her senior. As a matter of fact, she, he was the father of one of her friends in high school. He was a multi-millionaire. Flies all around the world. He's got several private jets, multiple houses, mansions all over the place. And she married him. Now we could go, that's sick. That's gross. But instead, we need to be heartbroken. Because yes, she attained everything she wanted. She got all the wealth that she can imagine. Right now, she works for a Fortune 500 company that he started. She runs it. She's traveling all over the world. I saw she was in Dubai the other day. I saw her wearing all Chanel and whatever other designer. But she's forfeited her eternal soul for that. We need to plead with people who have wealth. A rich person trying to run the race that's before them, is encumbered by so much weight. 1 Corinthians 9.24 says we are to run the race to win. A rich person, it is hard. We need to pray for those around us who have wealth. I mean, we, get, we understand why this guy ran away, because he had so much stuff. And we see that temptation. But we need to stop for a second and we need to go, hold on, let, let, me, let me see. I may not be driving the nicest, newest car. I may not be living in a mansion, but is wealth driving me? 
Is wealth telling me how to live my life? See, here's the thing. You fly to a third world country today, as soon as your feet touch the tarmac, touch the ground, you're in the top 3% in that entire nation in wealth. Yeah, but you know, I just, I live in this little teeny house and my car barely works. Yeah, that's, you're wealthy in the world's eyes. It's only here in America when we start looking horizontally or up at the hills or across the river that we go, oh, I don't have anything. In truth, we have a ton. And we need to remember that material well-being and the road to the kingdom of heaven many times do not cross. We need to understand that. So if you're hearing this and this is causing you pain, you've decided to make money your God. Your wealth, you're keeping up with the, the, the Joneses and getting ahead. And right now, you feel bad. That's the tension that Jesus wants us to feel. That's why this story is in the Bible. Everybody in this room wants to be better off than what they are right now. But when that becomes what you live for, it's a God that can go away in a second. So don't be like the rich young ruler. Draw near to Jesus. This passage is supposed to make you uncomfortable. It's supposed to make you go, I don't like it. Jesus goes, come over here. It's way better. You'll like it here. He's saying to you, because he knows that over and over and over again, the world is going to come and say, if you don't have this, you're not really living. If you don't have that, you're not really living. But the world is lying. It's a lie. If you give that up, you'll miss all of what life has to offer. Jesus is saying, you won't know what real life is until you give up what this life has to offer. Deny yourself, take up your cross. You can't taste how good I am until you give up this world. You have no idea the blessing you will squander if you do not deny yourself. Verse 23. Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Difficulty means very hard. This is not meant to encourage us. Well, you know, I do really hard things all the time, so I'm going to get this. That's not what he's saying. This is meant to discourage us. This is meant for us to say the only way a camel's going through the eye of a needle is for the camel to dramatically change. Sadly, some people in our Christian culture want to change the size of the needle. They also want to change the narrow road that few find and make it as wide as possible in contradiction to what the Lord says. Instead, he's saying, this is meant to discourage you because you need to ask for the miracle. The miracle of a rich person finding Jesus in spite of his wealth. Now, this is not saying that all poor people or none of the wealthy can enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, this would exclude Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who had incredible amounts of wealth, not to mention David and Solomon, Joseph of Arimathea. The point is not money bad, poor good. The point is, is the Jews believed if you had money, it meant that God was blessing you. He is, but it also meant that you were right with God. That doesn't equal the same thing. So the Jews were wrong in their understanding. This idea of a camel through the eye of the needle, yeah, there's a, there more, there's a, there's a modern uh, gate called the needle gate, and the idea was that camels had to bend down to get through there. That gate didn't exist in Jesus' time. 
Instead, what this is saying is this is talking about a needle, like a needle and thread, and a camel. The camel's the biggest animal at this time in Israel. So the point is, you can't get in on your own. It's impossible. Willpower will not do it. No matter how much you try, no matter how good the camel is, no matter how many Bible verses the camel has memorized, how many activities he's done, whether he's tithed or not, that camel is not getting through the eye of the needle without what? A miracle from God. So this leads to our second question. I told you the first question was long. Now we're into the second one. How can anyone be saved? If it's that hard for the rich, it's got to be just as hard for the poor. So how do we get saved? Look at verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The New Living Translation translates verse 25. Who in the world can be saved? You can hear the exasperation. I mean, if the wealthy can't do it, we clearly can't. You see how they had the rich people were more blessed? But this is a joyful truth for us. He's not saying that God can be used to gain your eternal life and then go back to the world. Instead, he's saying, I am the one that is life. No human power can displace the desire for more. It's only by God. See, Jesus' heart goes out to them. It says he looked at them, and that's that same kind of idea. His heart is breaking here. He's going, you guys are missing it. Don't you understand? God is the one who liberates us because here's the deal. Idolatry is slavery, right? Whatever you put in front of God is your master, and you are enslaved to it. And can we be honest? Wealth is a slave master worse than anything else in the world because you never have enough. Always have to have more. If it's yourself, guess what? I am the most important. You start running your world. You're a terrible master too because now every single thing is a slight on who you are and your pride is getting bumped into by other prideful beings and it's misery. Jesus comes along and says, I want to liberate you. Please let me liberate you. There's no surprise in the Luke story. Do you know what story comes right after this? It's about a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Climbed up in a, right, Zacchaeus, a rich tax collector. And what did he do? He gave away half his money. Matthew himself was a tax collector. He would have been very wealthy, not as much as Zacchaeus, but he walks away from it. How did they do that? Because God got a hold of them. If God can save Zacchaeus and Matthew, he can save anybody in this room. He is mighty to save. God can save to the uttermost of those who draw near to him, Hebrews 7.25. God can forgive all our sins, Psalm 103.3. God can do all that he promised, Romans 4.21. God can work every circumstance for the good and sanctification of his people, Romans 8.28. God can make his all-sufficient grace abound in you so that you abound in good work. 2 Corinthians 9.8. God is able to do far more abundantly than we can even think or ask. Ephesians 3.20. Why? Jeremiah 32.27. I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? See, the nature of salvation is this. Salvation is from the Lord and the Lord only. He does the work. 
It's not a human achievement. It's done by God. End of story. Look at Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The great will not enter heaven because they're great. The good will not enter heaven because they're good. The rich will not enter heaven because they're rich, and the poor will not enter because they're poor. Salvation is a miracle. That you are here today and you belong to Jesus is a miracle, on par with Lazarus coming out of the grave. That's what Paul is saying here. That a heart that converts, that submits to Jesus Christ is a miracle. You all are walking miracles. So this leads to our final question. And it's one that if we're honest, we ask all the time. Okay, I get it. We take up our cross, we deny ourselves, which means I don't get to do all the stuff that the world says. Is this a wise decision? Is it worth it? Is following Jesus worth it? Then Peter, speaking for all the disciples like he usually does, said in reply, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Peter's saying, what can we expect, Jesus? Now, there's a lot of ink spilled in commentaries about whether Peter was sinning here. And I don't think it's a cut and dry, Peter was sinning or he wasn't. I think that there's a mixture. I see that Jesus doesn't correct him. He doesn't say, get behind me, Peter, you mercenary. How dare you ask what you're getting? But there is a kind of a mild correction here. Maybe there's a mix of motives, maybe kind of like us sometimes. Maybe we don't lay it out that way. Maybe we don't go, hey, I gave up all this stuff, Jesus. What am I getting? I'm listening. Maybe it's just we're staring down something that we go, I don't want to give this up. I don't want to give it up. Is it going to be worth it, Jesus, for me to say no to myself? Is it going to be worth it to say no to that thing that I have to work extra so I can buy? Is it going to be worth it for me to take that position and, or not take that position? Is it going to be worth it, Jesus? This is what we're seeing asked here. What does this mean? Does this mean we need to give up everything? I mean, they said they got rid of houses and homes and they gave up everything. No, that's not what's being called for here. What's being called for here is do we have something vying for supremacy in our life on the throne that belongs to Jesus? And if we do, we need to kick that usurper off the throne and allow Jesus his correct place. Jesus' answer, he is just ready to give it to him in verse 28. He's saying, there's nothing you can give up that's worth losing the reward I have for you. 
There's no reward I could give you in this life that is as great as the reward that's coming in the next. Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now you look at that and you go, all right, um, hold on. What? Tribes? Thrones? What is this? Okay, this isn't for you, okay? This is for the apostles. This is for the disciples. We'll get to yours in just a second, okay? The disciples are told, you are nothings. You just had this really wealthy guy with all the connections came in and stood before Jesus and walked away disappointed. He says, don't worry, guys. Because you're mine, when I'm on the throne, you're going to be right there with me in a place of honor. In that new world, that's literally the end of time. That's the new heaven and the new earth where we'll spend eternity with God. Jesus on this throne. He doesn't castigate them for being mercenaries. He doesn't do anything but answer their question. And he says, you have followed me. And these 12 thrones will be your honor. Now, these honors are not because of what the disciples have done, but because of their devotion to God. Letting God loose in their lives to do whatever he tells them to do. And then we see the promise that's for all of us. Verse 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus sees your sacrifice. He sees it. He knows it. He's felt it. And by comparison, that painful sacrifice is not worthy to be compared to the glory revealed in us. Romans 8.18. Paul got this. Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Paul's counting his family life as rubbish. He's counting his security in a job as rubbish. He's counting his retirement plan as rubbish. He's counting his vacation plans as rubbish. He's counting it all as rubbish. That's garbage compared to what he gets in Christ. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You can't keep your idol. Your idol's going to go away. You can gain Christ, and he goes nowhere. God grants rewards, but Jesus never says we earn them. He earned them on our behalf. God doesn't say, obey me, and I'll repay you with interest. He says, no, Jesus is the one who's working in you, and whatever you do is for the glory of me. Jesus does have a reward, and it is eternal life. Mark 10.30, which we talked about a few weeks ago, does make it clear that he is also going to bless us in this life. We have a room full of brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, all in this room that we wouldn't have had we been on our own following our idol. So our gains outweigh our losses. How do we think about that? Well, one way we look at it is Job. Remember Job's story at the very beginning? He's got 10 kids. He's wealthier than all get out. He loses all of it, and at the very end, what happens? He gets it all back, right? He gets more. He lost his kids and his stuff, but hold on a second. He lost his 10 kids. 
Those 10 kids didn't come back. He got 10 more. Now, that seems like that would be pretty painful. Some of you have lost children. You know the pain of losing a child. And even though another child might take its place, that does not make the pain go away. So can the Lord mean that all this stuff that's happening, I'm going to give you more, I'm going to give you more. But understand this, Job gets his children back. Why? Because Job was a righteous man. His children were righteous. He gets them back. He just lost them for a time. But when he goes into heaven, his 20 kids are there. Now, it's really easy for us when we start talking about heaven And when I say heaven, I'm talking about the new heaven and new earth, okay? When you die right now, you go be with Jesus in heaven in a spiritual place. But that's not where we end up. We all come back down to earth with a new heaven and new earth, glorified bodies, living for eternity. When we're there, it's really easy to get caught up in the stuff. Yes, he's going to give us stuff. Yes, he's going to give us our family back. Yes, He can do all these different things, and the stuff is amazing and awesome, but there's more to it, and there's something better than all that stuff. Look at what Revelation 21 tells us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. This is trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give you the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. There's a hundredfold blessing here. Do you see it? Yes, loved ones in Christ will be there. Those who've gone on before us, will be there. Yes, there's no pain. Yes, our bodies will work. I can't wait to have a sprint with a few of you, right? My knee won't be dragging and we'll get after it. I get to see my dad without brain damage. I get to meet the man that I never knew. Yes, we get to see loved ones. Yes, we get to experience eternity. And yes, and yes, and yes. And all those are gloriously yes. These are great. This is not the 100-fold though, folks. This is just, this is like the kid who gets the present for Christmas and plays with the box instead of the present. Our loved ones in heaven, those who've died and are there, those people that we want to meet from church history, getting bodies that work, right and look good that's just the box it's the present inside that matters here's the present inside the hundredfold blessing is jesus look back at revelation 
It says, he will dwell with them. He will take them as his people. He will be their God. He will wipe away the tears. He will conquer death. He will eliminate mourning and crying. He will get rid of pain. And we will be his children. You see, John doesn't have words to explain this. All he can do is imagine all the great stuff that you want, and it's better. Jesus is better. This fallen world is obliterated. Jesus is saying, you're asking me if it's worth it? Yes, I am worth it, is what he is saying. So, how can we have eternal life? Nothing we can do will earn it. Only God can provide it. No good deeds count, only Christ's righteousness counts. So then who can be saved? Well, none of us by our efforts. It's a miracle of God in our hearts. It starts today with repenting of your sin, of saying something else is your God. Repenting is just a fancy word of saying, I'm going a different direction. We go to God and we say, I don't want that as my God. I want the true God. Repent and confess it and plead with God, and he will save you. And finally, is it worth it? We're going to ask that over and over again. Remember Revelation 21. It is worth it. Jesus says, you are mine. And Jesus says, yes, my child, I am worth it. When you step into eternity, you're mine forever. And that's the best news ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is powerful. Your word is true. And Lord, so much of the time we put so many things in front of you. Lord, I pray now that, Lord, we would stop chasing after false gods and allow the God of the universe to begin giving us eternal life right here and now. I pray for that for each of us. Maybe for some of us, it's we've never done that. So Lord, I pray that those would repent and submit to you. Maybe for others of us, we've allowed those idols to sneak back in. We've allowed wealth. We've allowed pride. We've allowed selfishness to be our God that we serve daily. I pray, Lord, that we would repent and that, Lord, you would help us draw near to you. Just like salvation's a miracle, we know that repentance is a miracle. So, Lord, work a miracle in each of our hearts right here and right now. Don't let us leave this room without you working a miracle in our lives. Jesus, you are worth it. Help us to see you that way. In your name, amen. Thank you.